Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. Today I'll be talking with Miroslava Savirich. Miroslava is a research fellow for democracy and resilience at the GlobeSec Policy Institute in Bratislava. And we're going to talk about misinformation, conspiracy theories, and what kind of regulation can we have on digital platforms that have social networks. But before I start the conversation, I'd like to thank our colleagues at Visegrad Insight, because when they organized the Visegrad Insight Breakfast, that's when I first met Miroslava and asked her to come to our podcast. And as always, after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this month of August. I'm here with Miroslava Savirich. Miroslava, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, it's good to have you. And I first saw you at the Visegrad Insight Breakfast with a title that was Information Sovereignty, mostly because of the COVID-19 situation. I'm going to ask you to tell us a little bit about the work you do and the importance of it because you presented during the, that conversation in the Visegrad Inside Breakfast the, uh, most of the concerns you have with the uh, structural problems of disinformation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That was a very good conversation at the Visegrad Inside Breakfast because it was a good chance yeah, to talk about this very important issue. And I work as a research fellow for the Globsec Policy Institute within the Democracy and Resilience Programme. And what we're mostly focused on is basically making sure, you know, that democratic societies are resilient enough in this very sort of shifty new digital era that that our societies have moved into. And while digital era offers great amount of advantages to us, and I think we all know that, especially now, you know, during the pandemic, we all have been, or those who can be of us, closed at home and, and working from home. I think the, the prominence and the importance of our digital spaces have become even more apparent. That being said, there are numerous and, and very, very important problems that we are still um, struggling to adjust to. And one of these issues is basically influence operations or disinformation, propaganda, spreading and hate, hate speech, hate content, spreading through digital platforms like wildfire and, and impacting, you know, our communities in a very negative way. So my focus um, at my work is, is a research mainly of, of, this, of these aspects negative aspects uh, that disinformation, you know, conspiracy theories and, and similar phenomena uh, bring to our societies, particularly in relation to um, election, you know, election period. I've done several election monitorings also of the, of the recent European Parliament elections um, in, in the before state. And then generally, you know, just research of how disinformation impacts our communities, how is it spread, and also what impact does it have on public perception, for example. Great description. And um, Miroslav, I was thinking the other day how funny it is that 
And you just mentioned that, that now we're at home, the people that can do it during the pandemic and the confinement of working in our computers, and those trolls that have been spreading all that misinformation, all those conspiracy theories, they've been doing that for some time now. Now I want you to go a little more into detail because you did present during that Visegrad Insights breakfast the global disinformation index. So this is as a conversation starter because then we're going to go into more of the concerns that you presented and, and, and I share, of course, and the elections that you just mentioned is one of them. But now, just for our listeners, go a little bit into the Global Disinformation Index. Mm -hmm. So Global Disinformation Index, um, I think that this is a British NGO and they do a great work because what they do is that they evaluate the impact of this information in terms of finances. Mm -hmm. So they do is that basically they look into programmatic advertising, which is the advertising placed by ad agencies at different websites, and then they estimate, you know, the cost that such advertising revenue generates. And in their very recent report, which is very interesting, particularly to us because it's European focus, they estimated that basically ad revenues placed on known and designated, you know, disinformation outlets uh, amount to approximately $76 million annually. So, so when we speak about disinformation, it's not just that, you know, somebody somewhere wants to spread false stories with some nefarious intent, even though that's absolutely, um, even though that's absolutely, you know, part of it. But we need to think about the fact that this is a whole ecosystem now that is self-sustainable, you know, because if there is an income for disinformation outlets, which really is huge, then they are able to generate profit, and this way, the ecosystem basically. Um, grows is is actually profitable and it grows and then it can also you know not that it can it does influence and impact our societies in in extremely negative ways and as you mentioned also the fact that this information yes it has been here and and these actors have been very active for many years that's true but now during the pandemic the problem has become so large that it cannot be ignored anymore because we have seen that this information can actually kill. You know, there are several stories, you know, about, for example, people in Iran drinking, you know, alcohol and, and dying of uh, alcohol poisoning because they thought that this will cure them based on the stories that they've read online, you know, or um, other examples. So it's not just obviously this information can have very negative impact on, on our economies, but it can also actually and is deadly. You also give to your to, to the people that follow the work by Globsec, Voices of Central Europe. And of course, as you are in Bratislava, that is particularly of interest to you. So can you go a little bit into that also? Yes, absolutely. So this is a report um, which my two colleagues, Katarina Klingova and Dominika Haidu, put together. And it's based on um, public opinion polling, you know, uh, basically it collects um, public opinion poll data on various issues. And these 
um, this report also has a substantial section on the spread of uh, disinformation theories, uh, conspiracy theories, sorry. So there are 10 countries which have been surveyed um, in, in this report. And um, you can clearly see, you know, some of the some of the data is extremely worrying because mm -hmm. um, you have, you know, you have people who in some countries, the people who believe in conspiracy theories and disinformation narratives actually amount to over 50 percent of the population now. So, that's, oh, wow. yeah, that's very worrying sign because you, you can see that, you know, that this um, that these efforts at, at, at sowing disinformation have a very real impact. So, for example, the most most famous conspiracy theory, you know, the one where where some people say that the world affairs, you know, are not decided by our leaders, but by secret groups who are aiming to establish a totalitarian world order. So this, you know, the typical um, sort of old school conspiracy theory. You have 60 percent of people in Slovakia. 60% of respondents who actually believe in this conspiracy theory. And uh, similarly in Bulgaria and Romania, it's 52% and 51% respectively, you know, and these are just shocking numbers. And then um, in Latvia, Lithuania and Poland, it's around 40%, 37% in Estonia and around 30% in Czech Republic and Hungary. So I would say you have a sort of problem if you've got one third of population believing in such conspiracies. But numbers are, you know, the numbers are much higher so in many countries. So let me ask you a question then. The work done by GDI and then that report that you just mentioned. And also I've been following the work of mostly an American-based groups called Sleeping Giants, but all, they're also getting into Europe now, which is to pressure those companies that are buying ads uh, with that problematic content. You as a specialist, what do you think of this? Is this a good strategy to pressure those companies to drop the ads? Do you think that this is too much of an intrusion in the market? What are your thoughts on that? I think it's brilliant, to be honest with you. I don't think it's going to solve the problem because, um, you know, you we need a systematic solution and these kind of civil initiatives are a great way to attract attention of not only, you know, um, the, the tech giants, but also of general population. Because I think even though the problem is massive, I don't think that people are necessarily aware of the extent and of all the implications that actually this um, um, problem is raising. So I definitely think all of these initiatives are great, you know, like now the Stop Hate for Profit initiative in the US. Mm -hmm. um, that's now, you know, it's brilliant because it really, in the US, it really raises the conversation around placing your ads next to very problematic content. And it's also very good that companies themselves are becoming more aware of the fact that this can have large reputational damages for them. In Slovakia, we have very similar initiatives which have now been active for several years. It's called Konspiratory, Conspirators, and it's basically a social initiative. Several, let's say, um, there is a board of specialists who assess web pages which 
broader population flags up to them as problematic. There are different kind of experts, you know, some are health experts, some are experts in politics, some are historians and etc. And they rate these pages based on their, you know, expertise and professional opinion. Then their opinions and their evaluations are basically averaged. And the average score, which is between one, which means not problematic, to 10, which means extremely problematic, is then ascribed to a page. And if a page has a higher score than five, then it's placed on the list of these conspirators and companies can decide themselves, you know, it's up to them, whether they want to advertise on these pages or not. So really it's about, you know, making an informed choices when it comes to placing your ad somewhere because of your, you know, consideration of whether you want to be associated with a known disinformation or problematic outlet or not. So I think it's great, but it's not going to, it's not a systematic solution, you know, it's a great social initiative. But it's good to know that some instruments are being developed and applied. Now let's shift gears a little bit and I want to talk to you a little bit more about the roots of the problem. The digital world is, is here, there's no way around it, we'll have to live it live with it from now on but some of the problems they've been with us for some time now but even if even before we get into that i want to ask you what are those problems and the most obvious answers is and we already touched upon some of them disinformation conspiracy theories polarization in the political debate that makes impossible to find a common ground do you think this is just an easy explanation? Do you think there's more to add to it? I think, um, you know, yes, it's it's true that polarization plays um, a big role in, in this issue. But also when we speak about polarization, we also need to ask ourselves how, you know, does it come about? And why has it, you know, increased substantially in recent years? I, I think there are quite a few studies by the EPRS focusing on this problem. But when we speak about polarization, we also need to we need to speak about how digital platforms structure, index, and present information for us. Because this is actually something that has the highest impact on the way we now consume information. This is because a lot of people, you know, now not only use internet as a first source of information, but also they use digital platforms of the as a first source of information. So rather than going out and buying newspapers, you know, they would be, which would be the traditional way of doing mm -hmm. it. You would open, you know, your Facebook and see what's on your newsfeed. You know, I do that, and a lot of people do that. But if you only do that, then your the way you perceive the world and the way you think about issues is going to be influenced and structured by the way the digital platforms actually curate information for us. So the trouble with this is that when you see information in your newsfeed, everything is sort of democratized into this one stream of information which moves very quickly. And because it moves quickly and it's very visual, 
these things are the ones that will grab your attention. So it sort of gives advantage to content that is emotionally stimulating, that is um, sensationalist, that is very visual and, and very quick to sort of understand and, and which you can also react to, you know, by the emoticon. So by this nature, the sort of dry, let's say factual, a lot of textual information is sort of disadvantaged from the beginning because you have to compete in this arena with content that is, you know, much more catchy. And as individuals, there's only so much information that our brain is capable of processing at a given time. So, you know, it, it sort of it sort of modifies um, our perception towards this kind of quick grabbing and um, uh, sensationalist content. And you can see that also newspapers, you know, and uh, traditional media now have to sort of also adjust to this new kind of environment. So you will see more clickbait titles and things like that because they have to compete for attention with all kinds of content, the content that your auntie and, and your friends, you know, post as well. So, so it's about also the way we structure our information. And then obviously there's this issue about algorithmic content, you know, the way it structures our information and the way this information is tailored to us. And when I say to us, I mean to each of us, because what I see on my newsfeed is not what you see on yours. You know, it's all tailored to who I am because digital platforms have a lot of data and information on the way I consume information on the particular things that I am interested in. And they will offer more of the same of this type of information to me because the likelihood that I will spend more time on the digital platform is higher that way. And that then means, you know, more ad revenue. So the whole system is sort of um, adjusted in a way that um, sometimes uh, really helps to, to close us off in these sort of digital silos that Kes Zunstein spoke about, you know. So this is what contributes to the polarization because I only see, you know, my bubble and more of that and other people have their own bubbles and, and really our worlds may never meet in a way. So there's no middle ground. When you enter a digital platform, mainly one of them that has a social network a service to it, please be, be aware that their main concern is how long are you on your favorite digital platform, either YouTube or Twitter or Facebook. So this is very important. I just wanted to reinforce what Miroslava just said. And the other thing that I would like to add also to our listeners that want to know more about this, it's just look for what is called now memoirs. Because uh, Miroslav was mentioning that sometimes the information, it's more easily uh, digestible if it is in the format of an image or a picture or a funny uh, content. And that is what is called now memes. And they're actually like armies of meme producers. And there's a fight going on who has the more interesting and who has the more funny meme. So that will be the thing that you will capture once you're 
in your favorite digital platform. So to know more about it, just Google it, Memoir, and you will be completely amazed how uh, extensive this universe is. Now, Miroslava, I want to ask you, for all those people that are listening to the conversation and saying, well, these problems, they always exist. And then you just mentioned that this is not new in a way that polarization always existed. But it is your opinion for other people like myself that think that this is really getting out of control or do you think, do you have a more positive uh, view on this particular? I actually, I used to be a pessimist um, <laughs> about this issue because it, particularly, you know, a few years ago, it really seemed like the problem is massive, but not quite enough is being done about it. And also what has been done had sort of a limited effect. And yes, I agree that this information, you know, has always been here. I mean, um, propaganda and disinformation is, is probably as old as politics because, you know, it, it, when, you, you know, when people in the past had the chance, they would spread it through printing press because that was the mean of doing it. The trouble that we're facing now is that the system for disseminating this information has become so perfect and so cheap as it has never been before and hence also much more impactful, you know, but there is a lot that's actually being done. And I have to say a lot of it is done um, by the initiative of the European Union, which I think is great. So there is this um, voluntary code of practice on this information from 2018, which we can sort of think of as a first sort of step in trying to address this issue of disinformation. So um, it, it works on a voluntary basis and it gets signatories, you know, from the large um, tech giants. I think TikTok joined just recently. And basically what it does is that it asks of digital platforms to work on some basic standards. Um, mainly, it, um, mainly it's concerned with the issue of lack of transparency. So some of the notable achievements that a code of practice led to was, for example, setting up of the political ads library or general, general ads library for Facebook and, and for other platforms, which was a great step when, you know, when monitoring, for example, disinformation or just general political campaigning prior to elections, you know, in respective countries. Because there are many issues with digital spaces advertising that actually impact national legislations because for example in most of the countries you have spending limits on how much you can actually invest into your campaign and if this kind of information is not readily available from digital platforms then how are we supposed to evaluate and truly evaluate you know how much certain candidate or political party has spent on on their campaigning so that's just one of the examples of what, um, of what uh, the code of practice has led to. But a lot of experts and, and recently also um, ERGA, which is the European um, sort of body which connects all regulators in, in Europe, issued this um, report. And they have been quite, uh, I wouldn't say critical of, of code of practice, but also agreed that you know further steps are actually needed and that self-regulation of digital platforms 
has not really led to to such significant um, addressing of the problem as as we would need. And I think one of the major steps that currently the European Commission is working on is the Digital Services Act package, which is a very ambitious piece of legislation which should be introduced by the end of this year and which um, you know, promises to address the major issues um, related to, to unregulated uh, digital spaces, which is the spread of hate online and lack of transparency in how digital platforms actually operate. Because at this point in time, how digital platforms operate, uh, it's only known to us from what they provide us with. But they are not, not really any kind of means of independent auditing, you know, or checking mechanisms that would really allow us to actually see, um, see you know, behind the curtain, so to speak. So we, we will see currently there is a public consultation going on. It's opened until 8th of uh, September, I believe so. And anybody can actually, you know, get involved in this process, which is great because uh, already um, first part of feedback for the Impact Assessment of Digital Services Act um, has been closed. And I, I saw that a lot of private companies and, and institutions took part. We also took part with our initiative, which we set up at Globsec called Alliance for Healthy Infosphere. This alliance joins three countries, basically, at this moment, Slovakia, Czech Republic and Hungary. And we have think tanks, you know, such as Political Capital or PSSI, uh, social initiatives uh, such as NLRZ and, and also private companies, Semantic Visions. And basically, we decided to join forces to communicate our feedback and our experience with the impact that digital platforms, that the unregulated digital platforms have had on our societies in, in the smaller markets, you know, because I think that the challenges that we're facing are different than perhaps challenges that larger markets such as Germany or France are facing, because we have much weaker negotiating powers due to the size of our market. And I will ask you to come back to the podcast again, because just the uh, future Digital Services Act, and we already know some of the work done, and you just mentioned it with the Digital Service Act package that aims to replace the e-commerce directive from 2000. Only that there's a lot to talk about, because as you mentioned, it'll get into a lot of things that uh, do directly affect what we talk today. But now to a more um, overall question, but I think it's important one to have in this podcast and then later on when you come back, we can continue that. And that is, there's a very provocative uh, article on Journal of Democracy by Nathan L. Persil, which at the time, of course, in 2016, and you just mentioned the problem that we've been having with the digital realm and elections. But at the time, we just came out from the uh, presidential election in the United States, and we knew all that, that happened uh, at that time, not only the stealing the information, weaponizing information, but also all the polarization online. And uh, uh, personally, he asked a very important question, and that is, can democracy survive the internet? But uh, tell us what you think about that. Can democracy survive the internet? You just said you're, you're more into the positive side 
but I would like to challenge you with this question. Yeah, I think it's a great question. It's one of the most important questions. I think it will depend on how we deal with the digital space. The reason why I'm positive is because I see that at least something is being done in a very systematic way to address this problem, because I am of the opinion that this is a problem which is systematic and hence it does have a systematic solution. But it all also will depend on whether the instrument that we will come up with will be efficient enough, whether it will take into consideration every stakeholder's sort of perspective, you know, uh, because it is, mm -hmm. it's incredibly complex issue because on, on one hand, you, uh, you want to, you know, you want to stop spread of, of hateful content and spread of disinformation, but there is a distinction between these two phenomena. So whereas hate speech in, in most of European countries is something, you know, that's clearly defined in legislation and hence, uh, you know, illegal or illegal speech, um, this information is not illegal. You know, this information is somebody spreading false information on purpose. So basically we can say lying, but that's, you know, we cannot actually, we cannot actually make this speech illegal because that would make a significant, significant infringement on free speech. So it's it's quite a it's quite a difficult thing to navigate and, and as we have seen with the recent French legislation, um, I believe mm -hmm. it has been you know at least most parts of it were struck down by uh, I believe Supreme Court. Um, I'm not sure whether it was Supreme Court, but definitely um, you know there has been a judicial dispute about this particular law because it required digital platforms to remove illegal or problematic content um, to up, up to, you know, 24 hours very quickly, basically. But it didn't really, it didn't really, uh, under the threat of, of big fines, but it didn't work the other way around. So, you know, so basically the digital platforms would be motivated to remove content, which would be borderline or perhaps not even problematic, just to be on the safe side. And, and here we see how quickly such a law can actually be used to to uh, impact you know on our freedoms even when it wasn't intended to be like that so it's a very um i would say delicate thing to navigate but on the other hand the law cannot be too weak so for example as you mentioned the e-commerce directive which is supposed to basically update you know, there's this discussion about the liability of digital platforms for the content that they basically show us on their digital platforms. And up till now, they have they have had this exemption from from um, liability. But it's questionable whether this exception is still applicable. But now we know that digital platforms are not just neutral providers of space because they index and they order the content for us that we see. They decide when we see what we see. So in this respect, they do play the role of online editors, you know. So it's very, it's about creating and almost creating a new legislation for this very new sort of um, in digital space, which has not really been done before. So there is a huge potential, but it could also go very wrong. Yeah, and I share your concerns. This 
for our listeners the concept of the sliding scale, and that is once we start censorship and even auto censorship, because you just mentioned that platform digital platforms can start censoring uh, contents just to play it on the safe side. And you mentioned the French uh, uh, law proposal of law, but also we have the net ZD. Uh, law in, in Germany, we also have the law in Austria, and also our British friends are going in that direction. So this is a, a fast-paced uh, moving scenario that we have to keep looking. Now, just I want to ask you, please tell us how people can follow your work. I, on the show notes, going to put the link to the transcript of the Zoom event with our friends from Visegrad Insights, where you were present. I'm also going to put the article of Nathaniel personally so that people can read more. But tell us where people can follow your work. So people can find us, obviously, on our website, which is globsec.org. But also we, you know, we have a Facebook page, which is, again, you will just find us under the name of Globsec where we publish all our work and also the work of our other programs in, in our think tank. So uh, all of our reports, all of our events, all of our webinars you'll find there, but also on our Twitter pages and also for people who are on LinkedIn, you'll find us there. I know that some content is also published on Instagram. So basically, you can very easily find us on all major social social media. I'm going to put all these links on the podcast description. Miroslava, this was fascinating. I'm going to ask you to please come back again so that we can continue this conversation. There's a lot more to talk about. But for now, thank you so much for talking to me. Absolutely. Speak to you sometime again. Thank you. I'm back just to remind you that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Spotify. And if you feel like it, give us a five star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by Elfa this first part of August. On the 9th of August in Bucharest, Romania, but this is going to be an online event. We have a roundtable discussion, iVoting, a European solution for citizens living abroad. Hundreds of thousands of citizens could have exercised their democratic right to vote abroad if we had modern solutions implemented by responsible governments. All countries face similar problems when speaking about elections and electoral rights to their citizens. And the idea is to have a rapid, working and elegant solution to this problem in adapting i-voting system like, for example, the Estonian model. This event is organized by ELF, supported by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation, Southeast Europe, and is co-founded by European Parliament. It has its cooperating partners, the Liberal Institute for Political Analysis from Bulgaria, the Laboratory of Initiatives for Development in Moldova, and eCivis from Romania. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast. It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament. 
and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any use that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament and or the European Liberal Forum. <laughs>